Welcome to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. Along with my brother Rick, we examine current events in the light of God's prophetic word. Did you know that there are seven Jewish festivals or feasts outlined in the Bible? While they are mentioned throughout Scripture, we find instructions for all seven laid out in Leviticus chapter 23. Leviticus 23.2 refers to the seven Jewish festivals, literally appointed times, also called holy convocations. These were days appointed and ordained by God to be kept to the honor of his name. These times of celebration are important not only to Israel, but also to the overall message of the Bible, because each one foreshadows or symbolizes an aspect of the life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Rick, on today's program, we're going to be talking about that. And let me say to you, Shana Tuvah, this is the greeting that you will hear throughout the Jewish world, especially in Israel, Shana Tuvah, Hak Sameach. It's the time of the new year, the Feast of Trumpets taking place in Israel. And on today's program, David Dolan, who spent many years there. I was with David throughout the years. And of course, Steve Herzig, our good friend from Friends of Israel, will come back and explain to us the Festival of Trumpets. Well, let's get started, Rick. We've got so much to cover with Ken Timmerman. Well, that's right, Jimmy. We have Ken Timmerman with us. He is our expert on geopolitical affairs. He's an author and an analyst. You can find out more about him, the books he's written. Sign up for his newsletter by going to his website, KenTimmerman.com. Ken, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me on, Rick. It's always a pleasure. Well, Ken, we'll start off this week with a very interesting meeting between two world leaders, Vladimir Putin and Kim Jong-un. Very interesting meeting, a summit that they had. Could you tell us about it? Well, you remember we talked about this last week. We said at that point they had not yet set a date, but it would be happening soon. And just as we predicted, it happened soon. It was on Wednesday. Kim took his armored train from North Korea. It took him actually two days to reach Russia. Uh, he met with Putin at the Vostoyi Cosmodrome, which is in the Russian Far East. This was what Putin inaugurated in 2016 to replace the Baikonur Cosmodrome, where they launched their rockets, their satellites, and the rest from Kazakhstan. He wanted to have it controlled by Russia. So they met in uh, they met in the Russian Far East. There's a land border with North Korea, so they didn't even hey, he didn't even need to go through China. And of course, they talked about weapons. They talked about arms supplies from North Korea to Russia, especially artillery munitions, the Russians are running low, and transfer of military technology, especially rocket technology, ICBM technology, probably even naval technology from Russia. Remember, we talked about that Romeo-class submarine that the North Koreans launched a couple of weeks ago, giving them the capability for the first time to launch ballistic missiles from a submarine. Well, that was undoubtedly Russian technology. The State Department responded to this meeting and those promises between the two leaders of military cooperation saying, this is quite troubling. Well, I think it's quite troubling that the State Department would say something like that without saying what they are going to do about it or what it means for the United States or how it could have been prevented. Just recall, it was only a couple of years ago that little rocket man was shaking Trump's hand. They were joking about jumping across the border between North Korea and South Korea. North Koreans were not launching missiles. They were not testing nuclear weapons. Boy, what a different world we live in today after that election. 
And we've talked about this before, the isolation of Russia during this uh, Ukraine crisis. The One of the unattended consequences is that it is strengthening their relationships with people like Kim Jong-un, the North Korean dictator, which is something that, as you said, something that the U.S., the Biden administration, the State Department does not like. But really, is there anything that they can do about it? Well, you know, the experts say they can impose more sanctions. Well, we've already imposed more sanctions on Russia than any other country on earth, including Iran or North Korea. Uh, Worse than that, the sanctions have had the opposite impact on the Russian economy from that which was projected. It has actually strengthened the ruble compared to when Russia invaded Ukraine in uh, 2022. It has strengthened the Russian economy rather than weaken it. Uh, in addition, and this is the, the worst of all, Rick, uh, the United States has single-handedly confiscated $300 billion of assets from Russian oligarchs and from the Russian economy. They confiscated 150 billion of the Russian central bank being held at the Federal Reserve in New York. And so far, Putin has not responded to this unusual, unconstitutional really taking. And I recalled uh, a, a comment from Bismarck from the 19th century when they were talking about sanctions on Russia at that time. He says, be careful what you wish for because Russia always comes for its money. Sooner or later, Russia comes for its money. We have confiscated $300 billion of their money. I think what's going to happen is that the Russians are going to uh, launch a new gold-backed currency with communist China and others, perhaps even Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates. It's one of the things that they discussed at that BRICS conference recently, and that will have a devastating impact on the dollar. It certainly would, Ken. And that type of thing, taking the dollar off that standard and what the world uses to trade, that's a game changer across the world, isn't it? It is a game changer. And it was equally a game changer to see the Saudis and the Emiratis and others join the BRICS countries at that recent summit. Nobody was really uh, expecting that in the U.S. government. Outside analysts were talking about it. But the U.S. government was saying, ho-hum, we don't have to worry about our relationship with Saudi Arabia. Biden has single-handedly wrecked the relationship between the United States and Saudi Arabia. Uh, In his very first weeks in office, he stopped arms deliveries from going to Saudi Arabia, not just any arms, but Patriot missiles, uh, things that the Saudis would need to defend themselves against the Iranians. And don't forget, the Iranians were using drones and attacking Saudi Arabia at that point. Uh, So uh, the Saudis are now hedging their bets, and they're hedging their bets with Russia. Well, Ken, this show, uh, one thing we have done is continue talking about the shifting dynamics in the world. The catalyst for all this has been the war in Ukraine, though, with Russia. And now coming up on this uh, United Nations General Assembly that is coming up this week, uh, Zelensky from Ukraine is coming to meet with President Biden ostensibly to get more money. Can you tell us what's going on there? Well, here comes Zelensky again to the United States rattling his tin cup. Biden is certainly very willing to spend an unlimited amount of taxpayer dollars to help Ukraine. We don't know how much of this money is funneling back to the United States or to the Democrat Party. We know for sure a lot of it is going to U.S. military contractors. That's probably a good thing. But we also don't know how much is is getting funneled back uh, the way it's happened in previous administrations to uh, the Democrat National Committee. But Zelensky is going to find Republicans very reticent to open the spigots more than they have been so far. Kevin McCarthy uh, this week was under a lot of pressure 
from his conference. Remember, he only has a five-vote majority in the House of Representatives. So he had people like Matt Gates and others saying they would vote to unspeaker him, right, to depose him as Speaker of the House if he agreed to more money for Ukraine. They want clean spending bills and they want a lot of other things. And Zelensky is going to find it difficult to shake out more money from the Republican-led Congress. So I think he's going to be frustrated coming here at the United States. And I think you're going to hear some bitter words from Zelensky while he's at the White House. One of the things I heard Zelensky say is he says that he does not want uh, the rest of the world to look at this as charity, but as an investment in world security. But is this the position that we want to be in having Ukraine fight our battles for us? I think uh, we have supported up to this point, but it's something that we're going to need to look into very deeply going forward, right? Rick, this is an unnecessary war and a dangerous war. I'm not saying that we should condone Russia's invasion of Ukraine. It's uh, similar in many ways to what Saddam Hussein did invading Kuwait in 1990. Uh, But nevertheless, uh, there is a long history between the two countries and the borders are not clear. The uh, Crimea, for example, only went back to Ukraine uh, in the agreement in 1992, where Ukraine regained its sovereignty from the Soviet Union and was given Crimea as a prize for giving up its nuclear weapons. And remember, in that agreement, the United States, Germany, and others guaranteed Ukraine sovereignty if they were going to give up their nuclear weapons. Well, we haven't respected that pledge. So this is a, it's a dangerous game. The United States has been extraordinarily duplicitous in our dealings. Uh, Putin has been very clear. Now, again, I don't condone the invasion, but we have entered, I think, very dangerous territory. It's time for the two parties to come together, either through the auspices of Turkey or other countries, and start to sit down and negotiate. I certainly agree with you in that assessment because escalation could be really terrible. Well, let's move away from the Ukrainian crisis in Europe and we'll focus as much of the world has been doing lately to the east. And where you mentioned BRICS earlier, you talked about these emerging nations, including Russia, including China. Well, India is another one of those nations, an event taking place this week, an economic corridor that comes out of India through the Middle East, including Israel, which I thought was very interesting. And allowing the ability for India's goods to get into Europe. Somewhat of a a shifter of the dynamics of what's going on, maybe a future game changer there, but the, the world is changing, isn't it? The world is changing. This is a significant development. Uh, It took place on the outskirts and the sidelines of the G20 summit recently. And they're talking about an India-Middle East corridor, a rail-sea land link to bring Indian goods to Europe. Now, this is clearly a counter to China's Belt and Road Initiative. Prime Minister Narendra Modi of India said so at this meeting. He made it very clear. But interestingly, we have the South who were involved in this and the Emiratis, the same, remember, the same players there in the in the Gulf who control so much of the world's oil supplies, who are flirting with Russia, who are flirting with China, but they also want to make sure that they are working with the United States, that they don't alienate the United States. So this is a, it's a big plus for India, but it's also a big plus for the Biden administration. They are lucky to have gotten these countries to go along with it. It's unclear who's going to do the financing here, but it is a big step, uh, I think, in the right direction. Kim, we're going to ask you to stick around. There's a couple of questions that we have for you about Iran. We'll take care of that later on in the program. We'll be right back, right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. 
I'm Dodd Morris for Ruth Kramer with Mission Network News. Iran cracks down on potential dissent ahead of the first anniversary of Masa Amini's death on Saturday. Family members of the protesters killed in last year's unrest were arrested without cause in recent days, including Amini's uncle. Protesters are not in the streets now like they were last year, yet the rebellion continues. International Media Ministries created a new social media video to introduce Iranians to the hope of Christ. Watch the English version at missionnews.org. In Nepal, Keys for Kids Ministries lost 350 storytellers in a fire last November. Preloaded with scripture and Keys for Kids devotionals, storytellers are audio devices meant for group listening. The overall losses totaled $12,000. Then God came to the rescue. Keys for Kids' Greg Yoder says the Lord worked through generous donors to overcome the damages. Find your place in the story at missionnews.org. A service of One Way Ministries. Have you always wanted to visit the land of Israel? Imagine what it would be like to walk in the footsteps of Jesus. With Joshua Travel, you can visit Israel past, present, and prophetic. The Bible will come alive as you see places like the shepherd's field where our Lord was born, Caesarea Philippi, Cana of Galilee, Capernaum, the Garden of Gethsemane, and the Garden Tomb. You'll even experience an exciting boat ride on the Sea of Galilee. You'll visit each site with Bible in hand as we take the time to not just visit the sites, but to help you understand their importance to our biblical heritage and to our prophetic future. We will place special emphasis on the eternal city of Jerusalem, the most important city in the world, and the place from where Jesus will rule and reign one day. Call Joshua Travel today at 423-821-3635 to find out more about this trip of a lifetime, or you can visit us online at joshuatravel.com. Welcome back to Prophecy Today Radio, the program that looks at current events in the light of Bible prophecy. Well, this is our Middle East news update. and Every week, Dave Dolan, a journalist that lived in Israel for over 30 years, joins us to talk about what's taking place specifically in Israel, but all over the Middle East. Dave, thank you for being with us again today. It's a joy, Rick, and a happy new year. Absolutely. We're going to talk about Rosh Hashanah coming up this weekend. But before we do that, let's go into the news from Israel. And what is dominating the news coming out of that region is these talks with Saudi Arabia for normalization between Israel and Saudi Arabia. And very interested party in this is the, the Palestinians. And there are demands from the Palestinians to join them together with these talks. Can you talk about how that is working? Yes, we're getting more information in the media mainly about those uh, ongoing talks. We know that on Monday this coming week, the Saudi Arabian government's going to be co-hosting, along with the Arab League and the EU, a Peace Day event in which they're going to talk about uh, the need to have a two-state solution between Israel and the Palestinians. It's going to focus, apparently, on the Palestinians and what they are demanding. And as I said last week, they want all Israeli settlement building to halt. They want Israel to hand over more land to their exclusive control and several other things. So um, the U.S. is invited and other countries. But interestingly enough, at this uh, U.N. meeting 
in New York. It's the Sky Day event that they're hosting. Antonio Guterres, the UN chief, will speak at it, will give a speech, but the Israeli and Palestinian delegations were not invited to it. So that's kind of interesting. They say, well, this isn't actual negotiations. We just want to lay out the parameters of that. And Anthony Blinken, the U.S. Secretary of State, said Wednesday that Indeed, the uh, U.S. continues to pursue an accord between the Saudis and Israel, but he said it must include recognition of a two-state solution. So he's bringing that back up again. As we know, President Trump backed away from pushing for that during his administration, but the um, current Biden administration is pushing it once again. And the Israeli National Security Council Chairman Zakhia Negbi said, well, we're willing to consider whatever uh, demands the Palestinians are making, and we'll talk about them and look at it as it goes along. But he was rebuked immediately by several uh, cabinet ministers, Vazilel Smotrich in particular, the finance minister who said, no way, we're not at the point where we can give concessions to the Palestinians. Their terrorism has upsurged in the last year, which of course is true. And um, he also complained that the IDF was going to give some armored vehicles to the Palestinian Authority to help their security forces. He said, you know, they're not our friends, they're our enemies. But of course, the Oslo Accords still have some effect and there is still some security cooperation between the PA forces in Israel, at least most of the time. So uh, we'll see where that goes. But again, kind of a backhanded channel to Israeli-Palestinian peace talks taking place. Uh, the Israelis are not overthrilled with this, Rick, because they don't see anything on the ground that, that makes us to believe we're ready for any sort of new talks. And that they, uh, in the past, when the U.S. has pushed, usually Democratic administrations have done this. We've seen violence explode as a result, not uh, peace come. So that's just the reality on the ground. Well, we'll certainly have to keep an eye on that. Very interesting that the European Union, the United Nations, and these countries coming together to look at peace in the Middle East. Of course, this is all done very uh, uniquely the 30th anniversary of the Oslo Accords. Now, uh, they have a somewhat controversial legacy, I could say, but uh, they certainly do cast a long shadow over the Saudi-Israeli peace normalization talks because of the relationship between the Palestinians and the Israelis. Can you talk about the Oslo Accords, what they were, and the legacy that, that remains right now? Well, of course, they were signed, as you said, in September of 1993 on the White House lawn, Bill Clinton presiding and Yitzhak Rabin and Yasser Arafat, the principal signers of the accord, supposed to work out a deal within five years for a some sort of a Palestinian entity, the Israelis were calling it, the Palestinians were calling it a state. Uh, so that by 1998 was supposed to take place. As a result, you'll recall, I covered it for CBS. Israel pulled out of six large Palestinian cities, uh, Nablus and, uh, and Jericho and, and uh, Hebron and, and some others as part of that deal, Bethlehem as well and Ramallah, and um, the Palestinians set up their government, uh, self-government then. And there is still optimism. And then, of course, Yitzhak Rabin was shot dead by a right-wing Israeli religious uh, shooter in 96. So I covered that. Also a very dramatic story, of course. And many said this is the end of the peace process. And indeed, it did come to a crashing halt for quite a, a while after that. But they still were trying in 98, 99, 
And then, as I mentioned a couple weeks ago, in 2000, September 2000, again this month, uh, Ariel Sharon ascended the Temple Mount on a visit. He was a cabinet minister. And uh, Yasser Arafat basically tore up the accords and declared a reversion to war. The PA security forces uh, went back to armed clashes with Israeli forces, and the second uprising began and lasted three or four years, really, before it finally uh, died back down. And ever since then, we've had this and that renewed attempts to resurrect talks between Israel and the Palestinians. Uh, President Obama did that. President Bush, George W., did that. And and those went to basically nowhere. Trump said, nothing's happening. Let's just see if we can bring a broader peace to the region in other ways, which he did through the Abraham Accords with Morocco and Bahrain and UAE. But those are not earth-shattering deals, but it's moving along the process towards peace, as we talked about last week. But the Oslo Accords basically considered by most to be a failure although the security arrangements between the PA and Israel, as I said earlier, do still basically remain in effect, and the Israelis feel that's very important. And in the meantime, more and more Israelis have moved to Judea and Samaria, and there's uh, hundreds of thousands living there now, and the Palestinians, of course, don't like that, even though their population there also keeps expanding all the time. Well, certainly a wide-ranging discussion there of the history of the Oslo Accords and basically history of peace in the Middle East. As these talks are taking place, though, certain things have happened in Israel and with Israel and her neighbors, one of them an explosion near the Gaza boundary wall that killed several Palestinians. Can you tell us what happened there? Yes, Hamas and Islamic Jihad and other groups had called for demonstrations near the wall, they call it, the security barrier concrete that's around a lot of the Gaza Strip. And around 50 young men had gathered, the uh, authorities said, and they apparently, several of them, tried to throw across the wall an explosive device where the Israeli soldiers were stationed. And at the very least, it creates a loud explosive sound. It hopefully wouldn't reach anybody. They're all prepared on the other side, the Israelis, for that sort of thing. But five Palestinians who were next to this device as it was being tossed were killed as it prematurely exploded. PA uh, sources said 20 others were wounded. So, um, you know, just a reminder that that conflict continues. And meanwhile, we had a report that in July, Israel intercepted 16 tons of ammonium chloride, which is used in rockets that are fired at Israel. This was in a shipment from Turkey of what was supposed to be 54 tons of plaster in bags, in plastic bags. Well, again, a third of that was not plaster, but was this explosive material. So the Israelis were very concerned about that. And that occurred while the conflict to the north is heating up again. Israel conducted three airstrikes on Wednesday in Syria against mostly Iranian positions. One was a research facility where Iranian, North Korean, and Hezbollah scientists and rocket experts are working on these precision-guided missiles that Iran is sponsoring in the area. That was hit overnight. Earlier in the day, Israel launched another strike on an airbase near the coast uh, that has an Iranian weapons depot and the, a new shipment of weapons that just come in, the report said. And then there was a third strike. 
So the Defense Minister of Israel, Gallant, on Thursday basically confirmed that Israel had carried these out. They, of course, usually don't say so outright, but he said the sound of Israeli jets will always be stronger than the background noise around it. So basically, you know, admitting they had done this. And also next door in Lebanon, Rick, the Israelis announced that they had discovered a Hezbollah airbase being built not far from the Israeli border. And of course, that's very alarming to them. Just again, all signs that tensions remain. And of course, it's not only the 30th anniversary of the Oslo Accords, but later this month on Yom Kippur, it will be the 50th anniversary of the start of the Yom Kippur War, when Syria and Egypt attacked with Russia's backing. There is concern that there may be an attempt by Iran and others to uh, do something major or dramatic during that time as well. So Israel's on full alert for that, of course, and its air force is still in the air all the time, whether it's a Jewish holiday like today, Rosh Hashanah, or not. Very interesting as we look at the peace process, but also the realities on the ground there in Israel. Well, David, we're going to have to take a break right now. But when we come back, if you could stick around with us just for a minute, we're going to talk about Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year. Can you stay with us through the break? I'd be glad to do it, Rick. It's all right ahead right here on Prophecy Today Radio. Have you ever wanted to visit Israel and trace the footsteps of Jesus? With Rick and Jim's VIP trips, you'll see Israel past, present, and prophetic. Our VIP trips are typically smaller groups of 8 to 12 people. This smaller group size allows us to spend more one-on-one time answering your questions and personalizing our tour. It is a very intimate experience. You'll visit each site with Bible in hand as we take the time not to only visit the sites, but to help you understand their importance to our biblical heritage and to our prophetic future. We will place special emphasis on the eternal city of Jerusalem, the most important city in the world, and the place from where Jesus will rule and reign one day. We can also customize our trip for your family or small group. Please call Joshua Travel today and see how we can make your trip extra special. Call 423-821-3635 or visit us online at joshuatravel.com. Welcome back to Prophecy Today Radio, the program that looks at current events in the light of Bible prophecy. Well, we've been talking to Dave Dolan, our friend who joins us every week to talk about the Middle East News Update. Not only, Dave, are you a journalist who spent over 30 years in the land of Israel reporting for major news organizations on many of the keystone events throughout the last several years in Israel and the Middle East, such important events, but uh, you're also a Bible teacher and uh, an author as well. So we're going to talk right now about Rosh Hashanah. I appreciate you coming back to talk with us about it. I would love to get your thoughts of uh, the importance of Rosh Hashanah, maybe even some incidents that you remember of your time there in Israel celebrating the new year, but also some of the things that have happened in Israel this past year. The growth of the Jewish population in Israel, the emphasis on the Temple Mount. If you could, could you talk to us a little bit about Rosh Hashanah and these important events? I'm glad to, Rick, and glad to report that Israel's population and every Rosh Hashanah, the government uh, releases these statistics of what's happened the previous Jewish year, which, of course, began in September of last year. They reported that the current Israeli population uh, just before Rosh Hashanah is uh, 9,795,000 people, so nearly 10 million, Rick. 
When I moved to Israel in 1980, it was just over 3 million. They said 73% are Jewish. That's 7,181,000 to be precise. They said that there are just over 2 million Arabs living in Israel as citizens of Israel. 6% are from other groups. They said 172,000 babies were born during the year, and about a third uh, of that number died. People died in Israel, so again, why the population is increasing. And also, of course, immigration has stepped up again. 66,000 immigrants came to Israel uh, during the last Jewish year, and of course, a good portion of those came from Ukraine and from Russia due to the fighting going on up there. Also, they revealed that 44% of the Jewish Israelis consider themselves secular, according to their surveys, but 44% consider themselves either traditional or observant or ultra-Orthodox. So, again, we see that split, that even split in Israel between the secular left-wing, mainly a voting population, and the more right-wing, observant, traditional uh, Jewish components. So, and that segment continues to grow in proportion. When I moved to Israel, it was about 25% only. So, 70 plus percent considered themselves secular. So, the birth rate is much higher amongst the uh, religious groups, and uh, that shows up in the statistics. And as we look at that, David, you talk about the population growing. The emphasis on the Temple Mount is also growing as well. This is something that we follow on this program. We look at it. And if you see what is taking place on the Temple Mount today, a record number of people visiting, Jewish visitors to the Temple Mount this past year, correct? Yes, actually, uh, nearly 50,000 Jews visited the Temple Mount during the year. Now, the previous year, it was a little bit larger than that, Rick. But it was also a leap year. Our listeners may not know, but Israel adds a whole month every four years to its calendar uh, because to keep the lunar calendar more or less on track with the Western Gregorian calendar so that the fall holidays do fall every year in the fall and the spring holidays in the spring, etc. So there was an extra month, but that's a, a record for a 12-month period going up to the Temple Mount. And, uh, you know, there were uh, arrests again, 236 people, Jews, were arrested up there. Uh, 62 were banned from coming up there. But, uh, you know, it continues to be a, a place that Jews are looking at. Now, before this Rosh Hashanah, Rick, we again had Hamas, Islamic Jihad, and several others claim that Israel's planning to destroy the Al-Aqsa Mosque during the Jewish holidays this year that they're um, plotting and in the final stages of that. Well, of course, this isn't a new claim. In 1929, Arab leaders made that same claim and produced uh, rioting all over the land, and 67 Jews were slaughtered in Hebron in a massacre there. So again, they, they bring this up all the time. It rallies their people together, but certainly the Israelis are not planning to tear down the Al-Aqsa Mosque during uh, the feast days. But again, it's uh, also the 50th anniversary of the Yom Kippur War uh, in 10 days' time. So, you know, we could see some uh, more rocket attacks or whatever, and possibly even an Iranian-sponsored larger attack uh, during the holidays. And Israeli security forces are on full alert, and they've uh, closed down portions of the territories uh, so Palestinians cannot enter Israel during the during the High Holy Days. And it's a time of joy and reflection. 
but uh, also a time of heightened tension, just like Passover is, unfortunately, every year, precisely because the Palestinian militant groups want it to be. Well, David, very interesting. Before we came on the air today, we were just chatting about Rosh Hashanah, experiencing that living in Israel. And you say right now it's the 75th time that the state of Israel, uh, since they became a state on the world scene, since they came back together, back into the land from all over the world, this is the 75th Rosh Hashanah they've celebrated. But you were there so many years ago. You were there for the 33rd one since they came into the state. So you look at this progression. The country has grown. The emphasis on the Temple Mountain, how important that is to the country, that has grown. You look at all these things taking place, Israel becoming an economic and military powerhouse in that region. So many things have happened just in our lifetime these are examples of Bible prophecy being fulfilled. This is what the Bible said was going to take place as we prepare for the end times, isn't it? Well, Rick, it definitely is. And I'll never forget that first Rosh Hashanah. I was with uh, 13, 14 other young Christian believers from all over the world living on a kibbutz in the north. I mentioned this a few weeks ago, Hagoshrim, right along the Lebanon border. And Earlier in the year, we've been bombed quite often from uh, Yasser Arafat's forces stationed in South Lebanon then. Uh, spent a lot of time at a bomb shelter. But by that Rosh Hashanah in September, a peace deal had been worked out by Washington, more or less. A, a ceasefire, I should say, not a peace deal. So we were out and about and not in our shelters. And the kibbutz decided to celebrate by having a, a big program where different groups sang and performed and did whatever. And they asked us, our group, to put something together, and we did. We got up and we sang a ditty that compared Hebrew to English, and it, it, I won't go into it, but it had some funny parts that made the Israelis in the audience laugh. And beforehand, I remember, I'll, I'll get emotional now, but I'll never forget us gathering and praying that we would, you know, be successful, that our hearts would that touched the people. And, and I said to them, the, my teammates, isn't this a miracle that we're in Israel and it's back and there's flags everywhere and there's balloons and they're going to have fireworks and, you know, all of this. And uh, we all just were looking at each other and, yeah, this is amazing. You know, the prophecies are being fulfilled and we're fulfilling another one that says that the Gentiles will come and aid the Jews in rebuilding their state. So we were working every day on the kibbutz and doing that and uh, watching it grow. And it's still a thriving kibbutz, by the way, with a guest house and beautiful uh, gardens in it. I used to work on those. And uh, it's a miracle, and it's still here 75 years. And, of course, the scriptures indicate it will remain until the end of time, and, and the Lord will come back to Jerusalem and set up his worldwide rule and reign from there. So um, the glorious days, if I can put it that way, are still ahead. But it is glorious to watch the rebuilding of the country over these years. And I'm uh, I'm thrilled, and I just want to say to any of your Jewish listeners uh, right now, uh, uh, Shana Tova, a happy new year, and may it be a peaceful and a fruitful year. And whatever happens, may all of us walk in the light of the Lord who's recreating Israel. Absolutely, David. What a great story. And it was a miracle. It is a miracle. Nothing like that has ever happened after 2,000 years 
not as a state, the Jewish people coming back to the land could only have been uh, directed by God's hand. And it's so interesting, David, as we talk to you, we have a long relationship, but just this opportunity to hear you seeing Bible prophecy being fulfilled. These You were a witness to history, but even more so than history, you were a witness to Bible prophecy being fulfilled. That is what this program is all about as we look at things that are taking place, God's plan through the ages coming to fruition. Well, David, thank you so much for, uh, for that recollection. It was wonderful. Uh, thank you for all you do every week, keeping our listeners informed. We look forward to talking to you again soon, and Shana Tova to you. And to you, too, and thank you for all the work you and your late father and your brother and your sister and your mother and who you said <laughs> made matzo balls for the festival. That's great. <laughs> for all the work you've done over the years and continue to do. And we're not just witnessing it. We're participating in uh, the rebuilding of Zion, and that is a great blessing and a joy. Shana Tova. Shana Tova, David, to you also. Well, Rick, as I said at the beginning of the program, the book of Leviticus contains God's instruction to his chosen nation, Israel, on how they were to worship him. It contains detailed instructions about the duties of the priest, as well as instructions on observing and obeying God's law and the sacrificial system. God designated seven specific feasts that Israel was to celebrate each year. Each one of the Jewish festivals is significant both in regards to the Lord's provision for his people and in regards to the foreshadowing of the coming of the Messiah and his work in redeeming people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. While Christians are no longer under any obligation to observe any of the Old Testament feasts, that's Colossians 2.16, that says, Therefore let no one pass judgment on you in question of food or and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a sabbath we should understand their significance and their importance nonetheless and that's why we have our good friend from friends of israel steve herzig steve before we get started on rosh hashanah can you tell us what it meant to your family oh that's a great question rosh hashanah is one of the high holidays as jewish people will call it it's a very important day. Uh, it's the beginning of the fall feast. It falls in the month of Tishrei, which is September, October. This year, all three holidays are in September. And Rosh Hashanah is the kind of uh, holiday that uh, you have to have a special meal, uh, which we always had. The family gets together. I recall with great joy going to synagogue with my dad. I come from a Orthodox background, which meant that the men sat in one side of the synagogue and the women sat in another. There was a dividing wall. Uh, and so that was meaningful to me because I was with my father. I'm the only, I was his only son. We had two sisters. And so the idea of this day is repentance. And you have to think about your sins over the past year and trying to make things right. So we not only confess to God, uh, there's actually a liturgy for the sins which I have sinned before thee, and then we list them. Uh, and, but you also want to repent to people, uh, things you have said, ways you have wronged them. And so for me, it's, it's a special time. Apples and honey are eaten. We greet each other with Lashana Tova, which means a happy year, uh, a blessed year. It's the idea of we know that 
In 10 days, Yom Kippur is coming, and uh, you're going to be sealed in the Book of Life or in the Book of Judgment, so you have 10 days between Rosh Hashanah and then. So my memories are it's a solemn time. The Bible talks about it in the Book of Leviticus uh, as a Sabbath day, which means it's a holy day. It's a day of no work. It's a day of uh, time spent with family and with God. And after all, that's a wonderful thing, and it was for me growing up. Now, from your perspective as a Christian, and if you were to look at that, how are Christians to relate to Rosh Hashanah? You know, there is an easy segue, at least from a Jewish point of view, to Christianity, and that is this. The Feast of Trumpets, which it's also called, Head of the Year, Rosh Hashanah means Head of the Year. The Feast of Trumpets is the ho- one of the names of the holiday in the Bible in Leviticus 23. And the uh, Christians, we go to church, and depending on the, the denomination or the independent church that it might be, how often they celebrate communion. But when we go into communion or breaking of bread or Eucharist, whatever it's called, uh, the Bible says in Second Corinthians, it says that we are to examine ourselves to see if we're in the household of faith. Paul's writing to Christians there. Well, that's concept is a Jewish concept that takes place at Rosh Hashanah, where we examine ourselves, we examine our life, we find out where we've been short of what God expects us, and we confess it. We confess it before God, we confess it before man. And so for me, the transition from Rosh Hashanah, from a Jewish point of view, is natural to a Christian point of view, because There's nothing we can do on our own. Judaism teaches we can, we can do mitzvot, good deeds. But once you read the the Scripture, the Older Testament text is very clear, uh, and certainly the New Testament, that there's nothing we can do in the flesh. No amount of works is going to get us to be holy. Only the Messiah, the Savior, can make us holy. But Rosh Hashanah teaches me that, hey, I have to have a contrite heart, I have to examine myself, and it's a contrast between an unholy person that I am and how holy God is and how grateful I am that God redeemed me through Jesus Christ. There's a passage in Genesis 22 called the Akita, which is a binding in Hebrew, uh, in which Abraham takes his son and offers him up as an offering. Genesis 22, for the Christian, is such a vivid picture of God uh, Taking, willing to offer his son, and his son, Jesus, being willing to suffer and die. In Genesis 22, Isaac asked his dad as they're journeying to Mount Moriah, he said, Dad, I have the fire, I have the wood, but where's the sacrifice? And Abraham says, oh, the Lord himself will be the sacrifice, my son. And so you have the willing son, the obedient son, you have the father who loves his son, uh, his only son, uh, and in the eyes of God, Abraham's son Isaac was his only son. He was willing to offer him, but he didn't, a ram caught in a thicket. But for us, we see the picture, the great gospel message, where a loving God is offering his son, the second person in the Godhead, who incarnated on the earth, lived, breathed, lived a human life as 100% God, 100% man, and then was willing to suffer and die for us. It's a great picture, I think, and a great transition for us as believers. Well, if you look at it, we as Christians don't observe the Jewish feast, 
but we have an application that we can take from them. And the, the, the Feast of the Trumpets, the shofar, the call to action that's blown repeatedly throughout this period, it's a call to action for the Jewish people. But if we were to take that alert, that urgency that that is tended to create, and we were to translate that to Christians, what would be that call to action for us as Christians today? Well, we know that, as you described, the shofar being a call. It's a, it's a call. It's a reminder. It's a call back. It could be if Jews that were outside of the wall, safety behind the wall, they blew the shofar. Joshua blew the, had the shofar blown, and the, and the stones came tumbling down that wall. The shofar is a call. And as Christians, we wait for a trumpet blast. We really do. And that trumpet blast is described in 1 Thessalonians, knowing that at any moment God can call his church to be with himself. It is a reminder, a call to action. The time is late. It is great. The need is great. We need to be about the Father's business, which is to communicate biblical truth, communicate the gospel message, which is exactly what your radio program is doing on a weekly basis and what the whole D. Young family uh, has wanted to do and continues to want to do, uh, which is a, a wonderful blessing so that people can grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ and also communicate the gospel wherever they can. I think that trumpet call is a great reminder for us as believers that it's getting close to the midnight hour. Amen. Thank you for that exhortation, and thank you for joining us today, Steve. We look forward to talking to you again soon. Hey, thanks a lot. Thank you, Steve, for being with us. Uh, As always, at each one of our times when we discuss the Jewish feasts, festivals, high holy days, the holy days, and Rick, we're going into that time period of the high holy days, Feast of Trumpets, Yom Kippur, and then the Feast of Tabernacles. So this is an important time in Israel. You know, we've had some interesting times when we've been in the land of Israel at the time of the new year. We sure have, Jimmy. Times when we've celebrated Rosh Hashanah with friends there, kind of some of them impromptu. I remember a time you and I on the Sea of Galilee with our good friend David Schmadar and the late Dave James. It was such a, a special moment as we celebrated this new year, this time of hope as they look towards the new year in Israel. Yeah, you know, I remember that also. And David's family, Yehuda, who built the Jesus boats on the Sea of Galilee, and Yehuda's wife, Joanne, and all the family and extended family celebrates the new year in this with this meal, a festive meal, with apples and honey and, and greetings of Shana Tovah and Hoxamayakrik. I remember that. And here you and Dave and I were there. And we started talking about the years of using the Jesus boat on the Sea of Galilee. And of course, Yehuda was talking about Johnny Cash being on his boat years ago and Johnny singing, How Great Thou Art. And then out of nowhere, we said, Dave, why don't you sing it? So there we were at the table with a family in in the Galilee, right there in the Sea of Galilee in Tiberias, and Dave James sings How Great Thou Art at that table. And really, what a very apropos song for him to sing 
during this uh, festival time. Certainly was, and you can't script those moments. You never know when those things are going to happen, but they certainly were good memories. If you look at that time of the year, you look at those uh, special moments when you recollect. It's a time of remembrance, and you uh, look at what has happened over the years past. As we continue on in this program, Jimmy, I want to go back uh, to Ken Timmerman now. Uh, He gave us his geopolitical update, but there is uh, an issue that is very important to him. We wanted to try to fit it into this program as we continue on, and it is talking about what is taking place in Iran. Speaking of the new year, it has been exactly one year since the protest started in Iran, the death of a 22-year-old woman who was protesting the the requirement of having a headscarf. We've talked about it on the program quite a bit. That was the beginning of the protest taking place against the religious, the Islamic Republic, the government there, the very oppressive totalitarian regime. And we've got Ken coming back with us. Ken, it has been one year since this incident took place and these protests started. Could you give us an update on where we are right now? The first thing to note is that the protests are ongoing. They have not stopped. They have not diminished. Uh, Just this past week, there were something like 30 protests in different cities and towns all across Iran. Uh, The regime is incapable of stopping them. So what they've done instead is they've passed new legislation, making it a, a criminal offense for a woman to appear in public without a headscarf, punishable by up to 10 years in prison. Absolutely incredible, uh, unbelievable. Over 500 people have been killed by the regime. By the way, Lester Holt of NBC News went to Tehran uh, just recently for this anniversary, the first anniversary of the killing of Masa Amini that got these protests going a year ago. And he did a, I thought, a, a very responsible interview with President Raisi of Iran, where he asked him hard questions. And when Raisi dodged those questions, he came back again and demanded the answers. And uh, Raisi said two very important things. First of all, he commented on the $6 billion that the Biden administration is going to pay Iran to release uh, five American hostages that are have been held for many years in Iranian jails. And uh, the Biden administration says this money will be spent uh, under their control and only for humanitarian purposes. Well, Raisi told Lester Holt, humanitarian purposes is whatever we determine them to be as the Iranian government. So uh, this is going to become a bone of contention. I think it's going to be very embarrassing for the Biden regime going forward. But again, this first anniversary of the protest, the women's movement has changed, I think, the entire uh, political uh, outlook inside Iran. It has sparked a pro-democracy movement that I've been working with for many, many years, but it has gone way beyond anything we've seen before because it's reached into those minority populations. It's no longer just centered in Tehran, in the intellectual center, the economic center of Iran, but it's in Kurdistan, it's in Baluchistan, these areas which have not been favored by the regime that are ethnic minorities, also religious minorities. So you now have a nationwide uprising against the regime. Uh, They are not quite sure what they're going to do about it. Their response is kind of a knee-jerk repression. Well, the knee-jerk repression is not working. 
Well, this is a situation you have talked about often, and they need our support. They need our prayers. They need our government support. So that's one thing we want to continue to talk about what is taking place there in Iran. I know one thing, and this is a final follow-up, Ken, I know one thing that uh, if Iran is having a tough domestic situation, the government there, the, the Islamic government there will try to redirect people's attention away from their problems and to their relationship with Israel. And they're still doing that, aren't they? Uh, They are. So uh, you had uh, the director of Mossad, David Barnea, this past week issuing an unusual public threat. He was addressing a conference in Israel, a security conference, and he said, you know, there have been 27 assassination attempts against Jews and Israelis by Iranian hit teams over the past year alone. Mossad has thwarted them. In many cases, they have arrested the hit teams, brought them back to Israel, interrogated them. The Iranians, of course, are furious. And so, of course, the commander of the Revolutionary Guards Corps, General Salami, is making all kinds of threats of how Iran will attack Israel should Iran be attacked by Israel. Well, this is really a self-defense mechanism of the Israelis. And I think it it also shows us how effective the uh, Mossad has been. They have infiltrated these hit teams, they've rounded them up, and they've prevented 27 attacks. That's pretty significant. So I think the Iranians are a little bit back on their heels with this, and they don't quite know how to react, except with the traditional bluster that the IRGC uh, loves to engage in. Well, Ken, as always, you bring enlightenment to these situations. Your experience helps to explain what's going on in this ever-changing environment that is this geopolitical world. Thank you for all that you do. Again, if you uh, enjoy hearing Ken's commentary, want to find out more about him, about the books that he's written, sign up for his newsletter. You could do that at KenTimmerman.com. Ken, thank you so much again. Thanks so much, Rick, and God bless. Thanks, Ken, for sharing with us uh, an additional aspect of what's going on in Iran. You know, even as the Jews are celebrating the new year, the threat of these nations coming against Israel, we've always talked about an alignment of nations that will come against Israel in the end times. We clearly see that in Israel, even as it is celebrating the new year, has in mind the fact that they could be attacked at any moment. Well, we're going to take a break, and when we come back, we'll have a look at the book with Dr. Jimmy DeYoung and the very first thing that happens to Christians after the rapture of the church. Right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. And along with Rick, we've been examining current events in the light of God's prophetic word. Rick, Shana Tova. Shana Tova to you as well, Jimmy. Haksameach. Happy High Holy Days as we come into the time of Rosh Hashanah today taking place in Israel. Yes, the Feast of Trumpets. Well, Rick, uh, speaking of Israel, you've got a trip coming up, and you want to make some uh, a special offer. Certainly do, Jimmy. We've got a trip coming up in October. I know it is very late notice, and we've had uh, some spots that have recently opened up for this trip. It's going to be a small, what we call our VIP trips. If you're interested in going to Israel with us in October, October 10th to be exact, I know that's not very far away, but there is still an opportunity for maybe one or two people who have wanted to make this trip of a lifetime, 
Give us a call, 423-825-6247. Maybe this is a trip for you. We can see if we can make it happen for you. It would be a great time, Jimmy. I'm going to be there in October. You'll be there with another trip in November. That trip, there's also a few spots open. If you are interested in going to Israel with us, give us a call. We'll see if we can make it happen. It's a great place to be, the greatest uh, classroom on earth to teach God's Word and the history of the Jewish people. Well, today on our study of the judgment seat of Christ. Now, if you remember last week, we talked about the end of the world, and we started going through, Dr. Jimmy DeYoung, with the legacy series, started going through when is the end of the world. And uh, we're going to get to that. But he finished with the rapture. The next event to happen right after the rapture for the body of Christ is that we will be at the judgment seat of Christ. Today, we're going to look at the procedure for this awesome event in the life of Christians that happens at the moment right after the rapture takes place. As I said, we want to look at the procedure for the judgment seat of Christ. That can be found in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 in your Bible. Let's go there with Dr. Jimmy DeYoung and the Legacy Series. At the instant that we are raptured out of here, in the moment, immediately, at the twinkling of an eye, At the last trump, we will be caught up to be with him. We will stand before Jesus Christ, and this judgment seat of Christ will take place. Now, I'm not sure how you approach that, but it's an awesome thought for me to consider, have to stand before the judgment seat of Christ and Jesus Christ and give account for what I've done, which is what the text says we're going to have to do. It's not to determine whether I'm lost or saved. That is determined already because I would never stand at the judgment seat of Christ unless I was saved. would be standing if I was a lost person at the great white throne judgment. But all Christians stand at the judgment seat of Christ to be judged for the works we do. Go here to chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians, and it gives us somewhat of a procedure as to how the judgment seat of Christ will take place, starting in verse 12. But if any man built upon this foundation, verse 11 says Jesus Christ is the foundation. So if any man would build upon this foundation, gold, silver, or precious stones, wood, hay, or stubble, every man's works shall be made manifest for the day shall declare it because it shall be revealed by fire and fire shall try every man's works of what sort they are. By the way, we don't work, of course, to come to know Christ as Lord and Savior. But because we do know Christ as Lord and Savior, Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10, see 8 and 9 says we're saved by grace through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. But then verse 10 of Ephesians chapter 2 said, created unto good works. Once we know Christ as Lord and Savior, we do work, created unto good works. All of these works are going to be judged so as by fire. Verse 14, if any man's works abides which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. But notice the next verse, if any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer lost, but he himself shall be saved yet so as by fire. You don't lose salvation because you didn't do a lot of works. You lose reward for the works that you should have been doing because that is God's law of Christ. There is a law of Christ. We're not talking about the Ten Commandments. We're talking about those things written in God's Word that He has for us to do once we come to know Christ. And why we do it is because Christ lives in us. 
Not because we're trying to be more spiritual, not because we're trying to gain salvation. We do it because it's within us to do it. And then those things that we do in his power and for his glory, we receive rewards for. Those things we do in our power for our own glory, we suffer loss for. Let me illustrate. He says there are gold, silver, and precious stones works. There are wood, hay, and stubble works. Those are two types of works. The gold, silver, and precious stones works are put on one pedestal. The other wood, hay, and stubble works are put on another. These works are dropped into the fire. When you drop wood, hay, and stubble into the fire, they're totally consumed. When you drop gold, silver, and precious stones into the fire, it's purified. And when these pedestals come out, this one's empty. This has purified gold, silver, and precious stones. The gold, silver, and precious stones works are works that we do in his power because he has empowered us. And we do it for his glory, not receiving any complimentary words from anybody about what we've done. I've noticed in churches where I travel, and I'm in a church, you know, almost every day of the year preaching. I've noticed how pastors today are using compliments to make their church work. And if they don't use the compliments, the church doesn't work. Oh, Brother Jones, you cleaned up the fellowship hall so we can have oh god bless you sir that was so wonderful god bless you oh mrs smith what a wonderful job at the piano you were so marvelous and if he doesn't say that mrs smith bought the piano so she takes it home and you don't have any more music <laughs> no, we're building the body on compliments those are the wet hand stubble works works we do in our own power for our own glory He doesn't need my works. He wants that which he empowers me to do. Availability is all he wants. Not my great ability. He wants these works that he empowers us to do. And we do it for his glory. If nobody ever, ever says a word about it, we do them for his glory. And we stand at the judgment seat of Christ. And that's what happens. And you know what? At that judgment seat of Christ, we get a prize. We get a very interesting prize. Go back to chapter 19 of the book of Revelation just a moment. And look at verse 8. Remember, the bride-to-be is to go to prepare her garments. What's going on with the groom-to-be? He's preparing the mansion. Now notice here in verse 8. Revelation 19, 8. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white. For the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. What's the first prize that we receive from the judgment seat of Christ? We receive our wedding garment. How do we know if our works were righteous acts? Only when they have been judged by Jesus Christ at the judgment seat of Christ. At that point in time, he judges everything with that was a righteous act done in his power for his glory. You receive a reward. You receive a lovely garment. I tell you the truth. I do not want to stand in that wedding time wearing a mini skirt. I hope I'm wearing a long flowing white gown. 
And so when my groom-to-be sees me, he says, Wow, look at that beautiful bride, all dressed up. There's nothing wrong with that ambition. The Apostle Paul also in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 said, I am ambitious to have a wonderful time at the judgment seat of Christ. I'm ambitious. That's the first reward we get. We get a beautiful wedding garment. Second thing we get, get your pens out. I want you to write these down. We'll not look at them. I want you to write these down. We receive five crowns at the judgment seat of Christ. Five crowns. Here's the first one. The crown incorruptible. First Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 27. A crown incorruptible. Now, what's that crown for? For bringing our bodies under subjection. A crown incorruptible. First Corinthians chapter 9 verse 27. That's the first crown we receive. The second crown is a crown of rejoicing. That would be 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 19, where Paul says, What? Are ye not my crown of rejoicing? He's talking to the people from Thessaloniki who, what? Had just been saved three weeks earlier, and he's the one that led them to the Lord. So you receive a crown of rejoicing for being a soul winner, for winning people to Jesus Christ. The exhortation is there. We must go forth to win people to Jesus Christ. We don't have to pray about that. That's an automatic given. And so in order to be obedient to the Lord, we do that and we receive a crown of righteousness, excuse me, a crown of rejoicing for winning people to Jesus Christ. The third crown is James chapter 1 and verse 12. James chapter 1 and verse 12. It is a crown of life for yielding not to temptation. Now, temptation is not a sin. Where it becomes sin is when we yield to temptation. And the Word of God has given us the way to be able to stand up against temptation. But if you stand and do not yield to temptation, you will receive a crown of life. That's the third crown. The fourth crown is 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 to 5. And that is a crown of glory. And we receive a crown of glory for helping the body to grow. Mentoring would be a fabulous way to get that crown of glory. Older people, you and I, both men and women, have the responsibility of mentoring. You ladies should be mentoring every single young wife and mother in your church. You ought to be the example. You ought to be helping her to learn how to be a wife. You've got years of experience. She needs to be brought into you and your fellowship. And you mentor her. And you men... Ought to be teaching the young men of your church who are husbands and fathers how to be a husband and a father. And in order to do that, you follow the dictates of the word of God, number one. And then number two, you receive a crown of glory. The fourth, excuse me, the fifth crown that you receive is a crown of righteousness. The apostle Paul, 2 Timothy chapter 4 said, I ran the race, I fought the fight, I kept the faith, I finished the course. Then in verse 8, he said, laid up for me as a crown of righteousness, but not for me only, but for everyone who loves his appearing. 
Now, I want you to know this. Dear folks, this week in my sessions, I've been doing everything I possibly can to help you get that crown of righteousness. I've been trying to encourage you to help you to understand the times in which we're living. You never can love the appearing, eagerly awaiting his shout for us to call, be called up into the heavenlies with him, unless you understand what's going on prophetically from the word of God and then applying that to all current events out there, looking at the current events in light of Bible prophecy. If you're doing that, you would have to say with me, we are quickly approaching the time when Jesus Christ is going to call us up to be with him. There's nobody that can deny that if you look at the word of God and realize the world in which we're living. It's an absolute. Therefore, that should cause you to hunger for Jesus Christ to shout to call us up to be with him. And if you do that, you will receive a crown of righteousness. All of these crowns can be given to us at the judgment seat of Christ. A crown incorruptible for bringing our bodies under subjection. A crown of rejoicing for being a soul winner. A crown of life for not yielding to temptation. A crown of glory for helping build the body of Christ. And a crown of righteousness because we love the appearing of our wonderful Savior Jesus Christ We all should strive to receive all of these crowns at the judgment seat of Christ. The judgment seat of Christ is an awesome time yet in the future. It happens right after the rapture, in the next moment. Since the rapture can happen at any moment, we must make sure that we're ready for the judgment seat of Christ as well. Next week on the broadcast, we'll find out what we do with all of these crowns and what they mean to us in eternity future. This study will be a real blessing to you. Please join us next week. Dr. Jimmy DeYoung and the Legacy Series. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, we'll take a look at the book right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. I'm Dodd Morris for Ruth Kramer with Mission Network News. Two dams burst in Libya during a torrential storm with barely any warning. On Sunday, the tremendous floodwaters swept away whole buildings in the Libyan town of Derna. At least 5,300 people are confirmed dead. That number could be as high as 20,000. Riyad Jabala with the Voice of the Martyrs Canada says they're working to connect with their Libyan Christian contacts. Most of our friends live far from the affected area in Derna. One of our sisters who live abroad, all her family live in Derma. She lost one of her relatives' families, and the rest of the family member lost their homes. Please pray for Libyan believers affected by the flooding to sense God's comfort and share Christ with others. After a 6.8 magnitude earthquake hit Morocco last week, government aid has been slow and communities are frustrated. Over 2,900 people were killed and 5,500 injured. For now, NGOs are reaching quake zones with aid and hope. Transworld Radio is one ministry going to be Jesus' hands and feet. Brother Ann with TWR. We have lined it up to go on air as of next Tuesday, next week. And we are working on making copies of SD cards. And our teams on the ground are going in a few days to the zone where people are affected. 
and giving these SD cards, spending time with people, show them how to tune in, show them how to install it in their mobile phones and help them to listen. The SD cards have biblical encouragement. 99% of Moroccans don't know Jesus. Please pray for open gospel doors and find your place in the story at missionnews.org. Mission Network News is a listener-supported service of One Way Ministries. Bibles for the World offers a 15-day Hindu world prayer guide Get yours free at missionnews.org. I'm Dodd Morris. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. Along with my brother Rick, we're examining current events in the light of God's prophetic word. Rick, great program today. It's a great time of the year for the Jewish people. And I like what you said. They're, you know, they're uh, kind of uh, recalling the last events of the year, uh, the past year. And you and I, and even dad, I remember dad used to talk about his Jewish friends calling him from Israel and getting things right. And it was this time of the year during the fall feast that that would happen. And so it's it's good to recall to hear Steve Herzig talk about what it means in a Jewish family, David Dolan spending the years there, of course you and our family, even mom making the matzo ball soup. That was a, that's a special memory, isn't it? It certainly is, Jimmy. And as we recall these times of the years and we look at these feasts and we know that they have a prophetic meaning, they have a spiritual application for us as well. And we'll talk about that as we go along. But Jimmy, I wanted to talk a little bit about the program today. Earlier on in the program, we had Ken Timmerman on. And one of the things that we talked about today that maybe we haven't uh, talked about so much recently is the emergence of the East. We talk about the BRICS groups. We talk about India and China. We talk about, and Revelation 16 talks about the King of the East, which you can talk about for us, Jimmy, but these countries are changing the dynamics in the world today, aren't they, Jimmy? And it's it, things are shifting, things are changing, and becoming even more set up and preparing the stage for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled, right? Yes, you know, and I watch the, uh, and I get the, the BBC alert uh, on my on my phone, and uh, when events are taking place around the world, and when it came up that uh, you could watch live the historic meeting between North Korea and Russia, and it's almost mm. like, uh, you know, the past meets the present. And these two world leaders coming together, which is really watching Bible prophecy uh, unfold right before our eyes. But remember, these events that we're talking about, the kings out of the east, Revelation chapter 16, they come and attack Israel. Well, when you talk about these kings, that would be China, I believe. North Korea would be a part of that. India would be a part of that. These nations in the far east they will come and attack Israel, of course, after Russia has already been wiped out in the Gog and Magog attack. And we've one of the alignments of the nations that we watch, this alignment of nations of Russia, uh, Turkey, Iran, of course, which was uh, previously known as Persia. Then you've got Ethiopia, Somalia, Sudan. Those countries will be wiped out within the first six months of the tribulation period. 
So the kings out of the east come after the midway point of the tribulation and they make their way to the nation of Israel for really the culminating battle, which is the battle of Armageddon at the very end. And there are a lot of things that have to happen. The river Euphrates dries up, preparing the way for this army that will come. And all the nations, it's the Antichrist, Rick, that gathers all these nations. As Zechariah chapter 14, all nations will be gathered to the city of Jerusalem. And it's at that point that the Antichrist draws these to do battle against the Jewish people. At starts in Jerusalem. It's a campaign of Armageddon, which starts in Jerusalem and then makes its way up to the Jezreel Valley, the Valley of Megiddo, uh, or as Napoleon called it, the mother of all battlefields, the Battle of Armageddon, Armageddon. So uh, yeah, when you talk about these things, Rick, this is why. Folks, when you see these events, that's why we focus on these events. When you see them taking place, it's so very important because all these things are setting up for future prophecies to be fulfilled, but they're not fulfilled until after the rapture of the church. Jimmy, this kind of brings to mind, you know, as we were growing up, we were born in the last century, the 20th century. Now we're now in the 21st century, and they called the 20th century the American century because of the rise of America, the two world wars, and America's influence in the world. Well, Jimmy, we're in 2023 right now. In the last 23 years, this 21st century, we have seen a moving away from uh, the, from the quote-unquote American century into uh, a set of nations that the Bible says are going to play a huge role in end-time prophecy. The kings of the East, we just talked about those. We talked about this Islamic coalition. We talk about Russia and the role that they're going to play, the European Union. This is the direction the world is headed in, isn't it? Yes, and you're right. We've seen America, which we, and I started teaching this in prophecy conferences. I would say those words. America might not even be a nation in 10 years. And, hmm. you know, when we watch that today, when we see what's happening, Dave James said that he, he would call it the downward spiral of humanity. And I think that that's what we're seeing. And that spiral is getting faster and faster and faster. Now it's setting the system and, and a way for the global impact of the Antichrist to come on. And that's why we focus on those news stories, those events. We not only watched and follow world events, geopolitics, but we follow the Jewish people. And then today on the program, Rick, we focused on Rosh Hashanah, the Feast of Trumpets, which mm. is not the trumpet of the rapture of the church. This is heralding, and the trumpet would be looking forward to the second coming of Christ. And Rick, you know that that Feast of Trumpets takes place at the end of the tribulation period. That's right, Jimmy. And we do study the feast. We look at the feast and they have a prophetic importance to us. The Feast of Trumpets, along with the other six festivals of the Lord, foreshadowed certain aspects of the ministry of Jesus Christ. The prophets link the blowing of trumpets to the future day of judgment. Joel 2, 1, blow the trumpets in Zion, sound the alarm on my holy mountain. Let all who live in the land tremble for the day of the Lord is coming. It is close at hand. Good stuff, Rick. The day of the Lord. That's Joel and the book of Zechariah all refer to the day of the Lord. And that is coming. That period, the day of the Lord, is the tribulation period, that seven-year period of time on the earth. Before all of that takes place, the rapture of the church must happen first. Rick, great job today on the program. I look forward to 
that sound that's going to take place that catches up the bride of Christ, the church, the rapture of the church. Rick, thanks for joining us. And next week we'll join on the program as we discuss more current events that are that in the light of God's prophetic word. Jimmy will be here next week. Excited to see what God has for us. Folks, with all this taking place, we do want you to keep looking up until. Thank you so much for joining us today. This is Jay Johnson inviting you to join us again next week for more of Prophecy Today. Prophecy Today is a listener-supported production of Shofar Communications in Chattanooga, Tennessee.